Hello all, I'm going to get started with our last podcast for the semester. So we're going to cover a fair variety of topics here today, and we're going to start out with implementation and capacity building. So these are both techniques connected to collaborative strategies. So I'll explain what the two techniques are. Implementation means we're using action and target systems that are willing to work together. So the people trying to solve the problem and the people they're trying to affect do not have an adversarial relationship. And things that are done to try to advance issues when this is the case include conducting research, studying the issue, developing fact sheets and alternative proposals, and creating a task force or a subcommittee. Um, capacity building basically means empowerment. So when capacity building is undertaken, the objective is to reduce barriers to participation by members of the client system. So this may mean teaching people how to become involved, helping them become aware of issues that affect them, teaching them strategies to make impacts. Um, it may mean bringing people together from different systems, like for instance, a social service agency, neighborhood residents, and a city council. So again, those are both collaborative strategies. If we were to look at campaign strategies, there are four that we might consider within that approach. So one of those four tactics is education, and that might mean providing different forms of communication directed toward the targeted system. It could be face-to-face -face meetings, formal presentations, written materials um, to prevent information to inform members of the target system because you want to lead them to think or act differently, basically in the way that you want them to think or act. Persuasion uh, means convincing other people to accept and support your point of view. And this sometimes is necessary because decision makers may not be aware of a need for change, may not perceive it as um, critical. And being able to persuade is an important leadership quality, being able to articulate reasoning behind a desired change in an open and collegial manner is a useful skill. Service users can also be part of the effort to persuade. Um, and framing change requests in a way that makes it palatable to a wide variety of stakeholders is a useful technique. Co-optation basically means um, winning members of the opposition over to your side. So it's related to persuasion, and it might mean being able to persuade people who are members of the target system to join your effort. And the idea is you want to aim as high in a hierarchy as you're able to get, because if you can get leaders of the opposition to change ranks and be part of your effort, they may bring people along with them to follow suit. And the last technique associated with the campaign strategies is lobbying. So this means persuading decision makers who are neutral or opposed. So lobbyists can be paid to represent specific special interests and target elected officials. Um, but what they should do is provide factual, honest information that is straightforward and supported by data. Should also include information about cost and social impact. Okay, so those are the two strategies, the collaborative strategy and the campaign strategy. We are now going to talk about um, process and outcome, and then we'll talk about logic models. Okay, so first we're going to talk about process objectives and outcome objectives. And after that, we'll talk about process evaluation and outcome evaluation, because these are a little bit different, related, but different. So an outcome objective specifies a result or outcome to be achieved for a target population. 
Um, and a process objective describes the procedures to be followed to achieve that result. So here's an example of an outcome objective. By the end of year 2024, op opioid overdose deaths will be reduced by 10% as measured by public health data. So that's what you want to achieve. Process objective might could be within the first three months of 2024, a total of 500 fentanyl test strips would be distributed by the mobile outreach team as documented by event inventories. So the process evaluation is how you're going to achieve that objective, um, the outcome objective. And so these are, are written objectives um, that set out what you're trying to achieve and how you're going to achieve it. The evaluation part of that um, means to actually determine if those were achieved. So a process evaluation determines whether the change effort was carried out the way you intended it to be. And this is very important and it is often overlooked. So if you don't actually know what program was delivered, you won't be able to interpret any data that you have about whether or not the program was effective. So process evaluation means determining whether the structures and activities that were set forth within the process objective match up. You know, so what it, did we do what we said we were going to do? Um, so one example is a, of a process evaluation would be to determine whether your community-based mental health agency has been serving low-income residents with severe and chronic mental illness. Like that might be your plan. We're going to serve this group of people. And then you go out and find out, did we serve this group of people? Or potentially, have we experienced mission drift and now we're serving wealthier people with more episodic or lower-impact mental illnesses? So process evaluation means, did you, um, did you execute the process um, objective the way it was written? Similarly, outcome evaluation see, is, is meant to determine, did you achieve the outcomes you said you were going to achieve? So you look at the outcomes originally planned in the logic model and the impacts that were set out, and then you try to see how we achieve that. So an example of this is to see if you're able to help people of low income who have chronic and severe mental illness remain in the community with stability rather than being hospitalized. So again, process is what you do. Outcome is what you um, achieve as a result of your actions. And so process evaluation is to see, did you do what you said you were going to do? And an outcome evaluation is to see, did you achieve what you said you were going to achieve? And these things are all related to the logic model. And they're all kind of like, you know, written into the logic model. So the logic model specifies um, basically like five different elements. So it specifies inputs, which are the, the resources you need to execute your project, like funding, personnel, material resources, facilities, and equipment, right? Those are the inputs. And then you're going to specify the manner in which they will be used. So that's the process. What are you going to do with the inputs? Then outputs are completed service units, like delivering a fentanyl test strip. Outcomes are short-term and long-term outcomes and impact. So these are all related to outcomes, short-term, long-term, and impact is like super long-term. So these are measured change in the community or the organization as a result of the intervention, like that's the impact. So all of these um, are specified within the logic model, and if you monitor them, you can ensure that your program is being delivered the way that you intended it to be delivered and that it's actually achieving the outcomes that you set forth for yourself. Okay, so a little more on that evaluation piece. Part of what you do um, is to collect quantitative and qualitative data to see um, 
how your change effort is being executed and what impacts it's having. Quantitative data represent numbers and qualitative data are usually words, texts, like answers to open-ended questions, interviews, focus groups, things like that. So both of them are important um, to include in evaluating different aspects of change. So for instance, suppose you wanted to evaluate whether your naloxone distribution program was effective. Quantitative data you could use might be how many units of naloxone did you distribute? How many repeat users do you have? Did you measure any change in opioid use deaths? So those are all quantitative elements, meaning they're numbers. We counted something. And you can even have quantitative data on a survey, like, you know, on a scale of one to five, with one is strongly disagree and five is strongly agree, please respond to the following statements. Those are quantitative because you've turned it into a number. But sometimes numbers don't tell the whole story. So sometimes you also want to hear people's stories. Um, so those are qualitative data. So in our example, with examining the impact of the naloxone distribution, you might ask people what kind of barriers to use of naloxone they experienced. So one study that did this found that people were reluctant to use the naloxone because they didn't want to interrupt each other's highs because they thought that that person would be mad at them if they brought that person back down. So if you found that out, that people were not using this because they feared kind of like social retribution, you might want to help provide more education so that they could determine when that person was at risk to ensure them that that person does want to be brought down if, if their safety is at risk. So you might distribute pamphlets, including that information with your um, naloxone unit. So gathering that information about what people find valuable and what barriers they experience to your service can help you refine your service distribution or your service implementation strategies. So those are qualitative data when you ask that open-ended question and people just you know give you textual answers. All right, so now we are moving on to organizational theory. So Weber um, is an organizational theorist, and he identified three forms of authority, which include traditional authority, charismatic authority, and rational or legal authority. So traditional authority is something that can be handed down generation to generation or is validated um, based on history, like a king having a form of authority or a pope or another patrimonial leader. So the ruler's claim in traditional authority rests in historic right to control. Charismatic authority is dominance exerted through exceptional personal traits, tends to be unstable and trans transitional because the authority is tied to an individual, so cult leaders exert charismatic authority. Rational or legal power is assigned based on the ability to achieve instrumental goals and derives from legitimacy. So usually in our elections, we really have a mix of charismatic authority and rational or legal authority. And how much each one of those weighs on elections shifts from time to time and from different auspices. Um, so those are Weber's theories about forms of authority. And we'll now move on to theory X and theory Y. And these are, um, you know, organizational theories that pertain to management of organizations. So theory X is a sort of traditional theory that views management um, regarding management organizational structure. And the assumptions that underlie theory X are basically that people don't want to work and that you have to force them to work in order to achieve your organization goals, that they will not exert initiative on their own behalf or on the behalf of your organization, and that you have to supervise them and fundamentally punish them if they don't work. So that's obviously um, kind of a, a, 
and not very social service friendly theory. Um, theory Y is a more modern theory um, and says that the task of management is to recognize workers' higher order needs, which are, you know, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that includes things like um, belongingness and self-actualization. And that we design organizations in order to allow people to meet their needs. And assumptions here are that people like to work and they like to take initiative and work towards goals and they seek responsibility and that you can trust them that they have the capacity to be creative in solving problems and that you do not need to supervise them closely, but rather need to create conditions that are conducive to their success. So those are all part of um, organizational theory. And related to that are theories about organizational culture. So Shine um, had, um, you know, developed a theory concerning how you learn about what an organization's culture is. So um, Shine identified three, basically, sources of information. So one of those is artifacts. And artifacts means the physical environment of the organization, um, which is basically its material aspects like reports, documentation, website, um, even written and spoken language. Like in social work, we use a lot, a lot, lot of acronyms. Like in child welfare, we have a CRAP, we have a CWELL, we have a CANS. Like all of those are acronyms that we use and people are supposed to know what that means. Um, artifacts also include visible behavior. So everything about an artifact is something that you can either see or touch. Um, values and beliefs are not visible, but they do drive organizational behavior. And if you try to ask people what their values and beliefs are, you can, can learn about that. So values and beliefs are what the members of the organization say are important and that are reflected in mission and vision statements. Sometimes, but sometimes not, those values and beliefs will translate into um, basic underlying assumptions. So if the values prove useful, then they become basic underlying assumptions. And if not, then they're kind of like just a lip service. So example is, um, suppose you have an organization that has a parking lot full of potholes, a waiting room that has chairs that are worn and dirty, and outdated literature or reading material, and people with substance use disorders are called addicts, and people who are suspected of having perpetrated child abuse or neglect are called perps. Those are all negative artifacts. So the stated values of this organization might be that the best environment for children is with their families of origin and that the goal of the organization is tr to try to remediate conditions that were conducive to child abuse and neglect so children could be returned home safely, obviously a child welfare population. However, if there have been many instances where children who were returned home experienced repeated abuse or neglect, then those stated values are not going to become core beliefs because they've been controverted. So the core beliefs might be that families can't be trusted and the primary goal of the worker is to exer you know, exercise surveillance of families and identify risks for child abuse and neglect. So all these things are related to each other. So if you cre create a material environment that's positive, establish your values and beliefs in a clear manner and ensure that those values and beliefs are consistent with experience, then there's going to be continuity across all these different elements. Okay, so last thing we're going to cover is uh, non-cash revenue. This is a pretty simple one. So non-cash, cash revenue is obviously cash, right? But there are also kinds of other resources that organizations need and that if they are managed well, that they're going to achieve and be able to use. The first of these is volunteers. That's pretty straightforward, yeah? The second of these is in-kind contributions. So in-kind contributions are usually considered to be material goods. 
Um, like in child welfare, we get a lot of Christmas gifts donated for children who are in foster care. Those are like in-kind um, goods. So they offset the need for the organization to spend money on stuff because they're given to the organization. I've also seen things that I consider to be in-kind contributions that are not actually material items. Like we wrote a social emotional skills curriculum for an after school program that could be used with no financial input and we gave it to them. So we consider that to be an in-kind contribution. Um, tax benefits are the third type of non-cash revenue. So if you have 501c3 status, you are exempt from paying income tax. Um, so it's very important to establish that status and to get that tax designation in order to be able to manage your finances appropriately. Um, and tax laws also have to do with what people will donate to your organization. So all of these pertain to um, basically revenue your organization can get and use that's not like a monetary donation. So I hope this is really useful for you. And I hope you, um, you know, have good luck with your quiz and that the rest of your semester goes really well.